let me just challenge you to take that invitation for our Christmas Eve services and uh, pray for somebody or that family that comes to mind that you know doesn't have a church home, but yet could uh, use uh, this moment, a time when they could rally around Christ and hear about the peace of Jesus that he brings to our life. You know, we don't take um, enough opportunity to do that, to use uh, the Sunday mornings as a unique way to invite others into the hope that you have. And, you know, there's a times like Christmas and Easter when people are going to be most open to coming to church with you. And so we say, why not take advantage of that? Take advantage of those that they know they need to be in a church on Christmas or Easter time. And so you have a real part to play in this. You see, many people are waiting for an invitation to come to a place like this. And you have in your seat a a pretty simple invitation. And it's our hope that maybe it's the person that you've been thinking about earlier in the fall, that who's your one person, or maybe it's someone that's just coming to mind now that you know uh, needs to have the peace of Christ in their life. Friends, I can't think of a better time to introduce someone to Jesus than to tell them about the Savior who's been born in Bethlehem that came to rescue them from their sins. And we have this, uh, this philosophy around here at the church that says, if the fish are swimming, let's let down the net. And we recognize that there's a lot of fish swimming around Easter and Christmas time, and that's why we have uh, so many Christmas Eve services, three, five, seven, and nine. Now, our five o'clock service is probably going to be the lightest of the attended. Now, when I mean lightest, it's going to be about this size, uh, but the rest of them are going to be packed out. And so plan, plan what service you come to um, and try to be on time or before time, and you'll be sure to have a seat and you'll be at peace too, rather than being angry as you pull into the parking lot and having uh, you know, a little bit of Christmas upheaval rather than Christmas joy in your life. Hey, today I want to talk to you about um, who Jesus is. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that you really don't care too much about what I or who I think Jesus is. Uh, you want to know or you want to decide who Jesus is for yourself, and I, and I understand that. Uh, a long time ago, I had to decide who Jesus was, and I had to like carefully examine the evidence. And I, I think, I'll be honest, I think some of you in here just haven't done it. You've relied on others, or you've you just never given it much thought, and so... Really, uh, how would you answer this phrase? How would you complete the phrase? Jesus is what to you? Jesus is. Because that's going to make the difference of your world. You see, more has been written about Jesus, the historical Jesus. Not, not Jesus that you find in the scriptures. The, the historical Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The man. Jesus, more has been written about Jesus of Nazareth than any other figure in history. All of history. More has been written about Jesus of Nazareth. There's no reason why you shouldn't know things about Jesus of Nazareth. You see, there's been libraries filled with it, both for him, against him, and to, to celebrate him, and to jeer him, and, and there's all sorts of things written about Jesus out there, all sorts of evidence that you can find about Jesus of Nazareth. So who is Jesus to you? I love how the uh, gospel writer John, he, he begins to end his eyewitness account of Jesus by saying these words. He says, there's so many other things Jesus did. Like he just captured some stories, put them in a book. He said, but there's so much more that Jesus did. If the We're all written down, each of them, one by one. I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. Like, there's just just too much to tell you. I'm just giving you the sweet stuff. That's what John says. But you know, of all the books that have ever been written, that have belittled him or have celebrated him, they all hold six things in common. Are you ready for the six things that they hold in common? Number one, there really was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth that was born in Bethlehem. Number two, he grew up in Nazareth. Number three, he had a large following of people that believed he was the son of God. Number four, he died on a Roman cross. Number five, he was later seen, later seen after he died. 
All of those books that take into the historical account of Jesus all say those same things. Born in Bethlehem, died on a Roman cross, large following that believed he was the son of God, and then later somehow was seen alive. And it doesn't matter if they're criticizing Christ or if they're celebrating him, they all say the same thing. Now today, I mean, if to present a sermon to you about like encapsulating the life of Jesus is like a near impossibility. It's really malpractice to try to pull that off. How do you be, where do you begin to describe a man who says he is fully God and yet fully man? Where do you even begin with that? And yet that's who Jesus claimed to be. But what I find impressing about it is, of all the people that were around Jesus at that time, they never could find fault in his character or his claims. Did you hear that? All the people surrounding Jesus at his time could never find fault in his character or in his claims. I mean, of course, his friends who were around him for three and a half years and knew him intimately, they couldn't find fault in his character. They couldn't find fault in his claims. And you think somewhere along the journey of living with somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half years, you'd finally say, wait a minute, things are adding up here. Like I had a a roommate in college, right? I knew a lot about that roommate and I liked him at first, but by the end of the year, I hated him, right? Because you knew too much about the guy. And I wonder if Peter and James and John and all these in the inner circle just said, you know what? This guy is who he claims to be. That's why we're sticking with him. But how about his enemies? Those who were religious leaders that didn't like who Jesus was. And you know why they didn't like Jesus? Because he had impeccable character. Because his claims matched his lifestyle. Those religious leaders, they they hated him, but they couldn't find a crack in his character. And they hated Jesus because he threatened their power. But they had to admit You remember Nicodemus comes to him, Nick at night comes to Jesus in John chapter three and he says, Rabbi, good teacher, that's a a high term, friends. That's that's like doctor. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. I love this. We don't like you. You annoy us. You put us on our heels, but we have to recognize that there's something, some special quality about you. Now, we're not gonna call you God's son, But we know something special about you. We know you come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Like he had this incredible integrity that had no imperfection to it. He claimed to be without sin, right? That's what he claimed to be. A man without sin. He's never done wrong. That's what he claimed. I've never done anything wrong. I'm I'm without sin. Actually, here's how the Bible describes it. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. He had no sin. He's never, come on. He's never done anything wrong to be sin for us. He took on our sin, the perfect sacrifice. There there needed to be that. God's written law, spiritual written law, there needed to be a perfect sacrifice for us to have a relationship with God. Jesus became that sacrifice so that in him, so then Jesus, we all might become the righteousness. We might become right before God. That's why Jesus came. And so Jesus says, I was without sin. Now, what do the people around him say? Well, I know the guy that sold him out, Judas Iscariot, The guy who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, once he recognized that what he was doing was a flat lie and recognized that it was gonna lead to Jesus' death, which I don't think he thought should have happened, he came back through the money towards the ones who bought his false testimony and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Now, how about Judas, or rather, how about uh, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea? Now, here's a guy that had had no dog in the fight. Okay, he's just a, a politician that is on the Roman side. He's not a Jew. He's, he's not religious when it comes to the things of God. He doesn't care. But they sent him 
They sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate to be judged so that he could be condemned to die. Do you remember what Pilate said about Jesus? He said, I have examined, I've judged, I've weighed out all the testimony in him, in your presence. I've done it before all of you. I didn't do it in private. And I have found what? I found no basis for your charges against him. He claims to be without sin. He seems to be without sin. Everything's stacking up here. He he claims to be the son of God. It's stacking up to me like he is the son of God. This all seems to be right. I I got no dog in the fight, but this seems to be going right for him. And then do you remember what he said before he handed him over back to the Jewish leaders? He said, after he washed his hands in water, what did he say? I am innocent of what? This man's blood. It ain't on me. It's on you. It looks like all of his claims stacked up. It looked like his character matched his claims. Friends, you can tell a lot about somebody just by their character. And Jesus' character matched his claims. A lot of you in this room, you you might think you know me. Uh, Some of you do. You know me really well. Uh, You know my hurts, habits, hangups, and what makes me happy. But many of you in this room don't. Oh, you think you do. But if you heard some stories, you'd say, that doesn't sound like Matt. But anyone close would say, no, that sounds exactly like him. He got pulled over how many times in his first year of ministry here? Seven? Yep, that sounds about right. Almost lost his license? Yep, sounds about right. Three of those times were in the church van? Sounds about right. That's all true, by the way. I don't know why they stuck it out with me. I have no idea. And some of you really think, because of what you see on the platform and what you hear from me in the stories, the good stuff, you think you know You think you know me intimately, but the truth is that's just not the case. Your identity distinguishes and defines you to others, and the character is ultimately, or the claims are going to have to ultimately match the character somewhere along the journey, and the identity is going to have to come and be welded to that character, that that person somewhere. I heard about this elderly lady that came into a very large church, and she was looking for a seat. There weren't too many available. The place was packed out. She met one of our, or met one of the ushers, and uh, the usher's like, okay, we can find you a seat in the back. She said, oh, no, I want to sit up front. The usher said, no, 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 you, you don't want to sit up front. We got a new preacher. He's really boring. And um, I don't want you to, like, nod off and fall asleep, and then everyone in the audience kind of, like, will laugh at you, and then the preacher will see you. I, I don't want that. Well, the lady was, like, totally taken back. She was aghast at that. She's like, do you know who I am? The usher said, no. She said, I am the preacher's mother. The usher says, well, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good, and then he ran off. (laughs) Listen, the identity that we have, a person's identity and how we know them really reveals their character. And there are so many characteristics about Jesus Christ that make him distinctive, that hold him above any other figure in history. That's why out of all the hundreds of thousands of criminals that were executed on a Roman cross, you can only give me the name of one person who died on a Roman cross. And that's the name of Jesus. He stands out amongst all the other personalities that have ever walked on the face of the earth. There had to have been something about his character. There had to have been something about his claims that happened to be true. I mean, to think this thing was a full deception. Jesus is, Jesus is what to you? Well, Jesus wants this defined. He wants to know who he is before others. And so in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 9, turn there with me if you would. We're going to look at verse 18. It's page 8. 41 in the Bible, in the chair rack in front of you. Uh, The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are found in the New Testament section of our scriptures, are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' ministry. 
They're describing what they saw and how they heard it, their eyewitness accounts. And let me just give you some context before we get into Luke 9. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with two small loaves or two small fish and five loaves of bread. And you're saying that's impossible. You know what I say to you? It is impossible. It is completely impossible. Now, I've seen my wife work some miracles in the kitchen, but nothing quite like that, right? And Jesus was able to take two small fish, five loaves of bread, and be able to feed 5,000 people because, well, God can do the impossible. He can break away from the human limit and do something outside of the scope of the universe and its laws. And so that's what just had taken place. This giant miracle had taken place, and people are mesmerized by the power and the authority that Jesus has. So Jesus and his team, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they walk away from that moment, and they find like a quiet spot where they can just rest and talk. Jesus starts to pray. Luke 9, verse 18, here's what it says. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them. So he looks up from their prayer. He looks up from praying and he stares at his disciples and he says this question. Who do the crowds say I am? Notice how impersonal that is. I'm not asking what you think. I'm not asking what you believe. I'm not asking what you say I am. I'm just saying, what's the scuttlebutt? Like, when... What's the hubbub about me? What are people saying? I, I just want to get a grip on what people say about who I am. Look at verse 19. They replied, well, Jesus, if you want to know what the crowds are thinking, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're like Elijah. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Maybe someone, maybe you're like a reincarnated prophet. or I don't know. But it seems like the world just doesn't have a clue really who Jesus is. Hey guys, nothing's changed. What has really changed in 2,000 years? You ask anybody in the crowd, a non-believer who is Jesus, and they're gonna come up with all sorts of ideas. Well, he was a good guy, a great teacher, but I'm not sure if he really was the son of God. U.S. News and World Report did a article some years back, and they we're talking about the identity of Jesus through the view of the public mentality. And they said there's really three public mentalities about Jesus. Number one is that Jesus was a lunatic. He was just like out of his mind. He had a Messiah complex. He believed he was from heaven. He believed he was the son of God. And he had this powerful compulsion over people to persuade others to believe the same thing. But really, they were all fallen a lunatic. Oh yeah, and the billions of people that claim Christ to be king of their life today, well, they're doing the same. They're just following someone who had lost their mind and had a Messiah complex. Then they went on to the next paragraph and said, or perhaps some believe Jesus to be a liar, that Jesus was really trying to create some kind of political revolt against Rome as a Jew, which was uh, kind of the thing of the day to do. And Jesus was just rallying troops to him. And he claimed to be the Messiah because he thought the Messiah would be the king, the one in charge over all the people. And maybe he was just lying and fooling the people. Then they said, or, or maybe he was Lord. That what he said of himself was true. That he is the son of God. And then people followed him because they saw God within him. And his character matched his claims. And they truly were following the Messiah, the one that the Bible had prophesied for so long to be born in Bethlehem. 
I love what World Report does. It narrows it down to three things. You can call him a, a liar, you can call him a lunatic, or you can call him Lord. And that's just about the only things you can do with this man named Jesus who claimed to be the son of God. Hey, fellas, what does the world think about me? Who do the crowd say I am? Well, Jesus, they think you're a pretty good guy. I mean, you're like a John the Baptist kind of guy. You'll go down in history kind of like an Elijah one day. You're a great teacher. Ask anybody today who hasn't called Jesus Lord. Who is Jesus? Well, he was a good teacher. I'll admit that. Yeah, he was real from Nazareth. I get it. I don't know about all the miracle stuff that happened on that. But yeah, I get that a lot of people follow him. He was pretty famous for a while. People are still following him. He must have been good. I love how C.S. Lewis, like this great Christian thinker, debunks all that kind of thinking. Like if he's not Lord and he was a liar or lunatic, listen to what he says. You can't merely say that Jesus Christ was a good man. Like some of you are in this room, you haven't done anything with Jesus, you just think he's a good guy. He's not left that option available for us. For if he is not the son of God as he claims, then he is a terrible liar. Oh, and not a good man. Oh, so if he was a good teacher and claimed to be the son of God, but he's not the son of God, then he is a terrible liar. He's fooled the world, and he's really not good because that's an awful joke to lead people astray like that. You see, when he comes to Jesus, what are the options? There's liar, there's lunatic, and there's Lord. And so Jesus asks the question, hey, fellas, what do the crowd say I am? And it's almost like Jesus asking us like impersonally, like, who does your grandma say I am? Who did your college professor say I was? Who do your friends say I am? Like, what does your world say about Jesus? What waters are you in? What's the thinking about me in your world? But listen how he gets personal here in verse 20. Go with the, me to Luke, 9, verse, Luke chapter 9, verse 20. But what about you? I love that. Okay, I'm not asking about the crowds anymore. I'm not asking about grandma. I'm not asking about your college professor. I'm not asking about your history teacher. I'm not asking about your friend group. I'm not asking about how you were raised. I'm just asking you now, where am I at in that placement? Jesus is liar, lunatic, Lord. How about you? He asks, then I love this. Who do you say I am? Oh, there's the, there's the pinpointed question. Like, who do you say Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? I love Peter. Peter was known for like his zeal, like, like uh, shoot first, aim later kind of thing. And so Peter, it's like filled with the spirit. Like he's put it together. Three and a half years with Jesus, he's got it. Characters match the claim. God's Messiah, he says, God's Messiah. I'll take God's Messiah for 500, Alex. <laughs> Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone now you might be wondering, like, why would Jesus do that? Why would he say, don't tell anybody? Isn't the idea to get the message out? Well, that would have hindered his message right there. Crowds would have flocked to him. They would have just celebrated him. He would have never been able to travel or do the mission because he would have been encumbered by the crowds. People would have stood in defense so that he wouldn't be executed on the cross. They would have had a mob on their hands, those Romans would have, and they would have made sure Jesus wasn't crucified. So he had to keep it under wraps so that all would happen according to God's will. But Peter had it right. You're God's Messiah. Peter cuts through the nonsense. Peter cuts through the crowds and says, oh, Jesus, you want to know what I think? I just told you what everyone else thinks. They just think you're someone special. You know what I think? I think you're Savior. They think you're someone of meaning, but you know what I think? I think you're Messiah. They think you're good, but you know what I think? I think you're God. That's what I think. I like how Matthew it's like all these gospel writers heard it a little differently. They saw it a little differently, just like you'd hear and see things differently if you were to write down an eyewitness account. We'd all have a different viewpoint. 
Matthew says it like this, that Peter shouted out when asked, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Important last phrase, the son of the living God. They were in this region called Caesarea Philippi. At Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus was praying and the 12 were meeting, this was this area where it was filled with like a graveyard of false gods, a graveyard of idols. So just picture broken down statues and false gods and false idols. They've just kind of been put out there as kind of this like graveyard area. And they are now praying there and, and, and having this little group meeting amongst this graveyard of man-made gods. And what does Peter say in the midst of all these dead gods? You are the son of the the living God. Jesus, you're nothing like these. You're nothing like this. These are all man-made. These were all supposed to have meaning. These were all supposed to be good. But you are the Christ. You are the living God. You know, several several months later, Jesus is going to prove that he's the living God when he resurrects on a Sunday morning from the dead. And proves that death can't hold him, that he truly is the living God. So what does the crowd say? Well, you're a good teacher. You're a good man. What does the Bible say? Well, it's this time of the year where we hear what the Bible first begins to say about Jesus. The angels come to Mary and Joseph and to Bethlehem. And they have this moment where an archangel speaks to the shepherds. And he says, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He's the one who's come to rescue humanity from our sins, from the bad things that we have done. Do you remember how John the Baptist identified Jesus when he first saw him? This beautiful phrase, here is the lamb. Some of you know it like this. Behold. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember, even the demons had an opinion about Jesus. In one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes and confronts a demon and pulls a demon out of a, out of a man who is demon-possessed, and that demon cries out and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. And then remember this centurion Roman soldier who was part of the execution of Jesus. I don't know what part he played, but after Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it is finished and gave up his spirit and died on that cross, that centurion looked up to Jesus and said, surely this man was the son of God. His character matched his claims. And then Thomas, the one who had doubted Thomas, who scattered and ran and fled after that death, not even thinking there was going to be a resurrection, hears that Jesus is alive. And remember what he says? I'll believe it when I see it. Jesus says, oh, no problem here. Stick your hands right here, Thomas. Stick your hands right here, Thomas. And he does, and he, he says, my Lord, my God. That's good biblical stuff, right? You're thinking, yeah, but what about me? I'm 2,000 years removed. Jesus isn't here. Like, I get it for all those people. They saw him in physical form. They saw him die. They saw him rise again. They saw these great miracles being performed. I just don't think I can put my faith into someone so far removed from me. Or how about this one? I don't think I can trust someone I don't really even know. Oh, really? Because you put your trust in the hands of someone every single day. You drive through a green light, and you're trusting that those on the other side of the intersection have stopped, right, at their red light, that they're going to obey the law and that they have 
seeing the red light. Or let's just say that you get sick, like deathly sick, and your family rushes you to the emergency room, and they push you through the ER doors, and they load you up on the bed there, and they, doctors and nurses just gather around. They're starting to look over you. You're not going to sit there and say, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Medical record, please give me, where'd you go to school? Uh, tell me, like, how long you've been practicing? You, you have no time to vet, right? You have no time to vet. You just allow them to do their work. And then after the work is accomplished, you can find out if their work was superior or subpar. We put our hands into the life of others all the time. People we don't even know. We completely, we completely trust and put our faith into them. And Christ has all this evidence and all this witnesses and written word and historical facts that are so much said about Jesus. There's no reason why you can't know or determine who Jesus is. Friends, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. So if the world says one thing and the Bible says one thing, Jesus really wants to know what you say. Like, what do you say in your heart? Who is Jesus? Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? Because we have so much evidence out there to figure this out. There's too much evidence to figure out. There's written word, historical evidence, eyewitness accounts, billions of people whose lives have been transformed, people who have died in the name and the cause of Christ. Is he for real or is he fake? I heard about this woman, a 1980 true story. She completed the Boston Marathon. She won the women's division of the race. The crowds cheered her on like crazy. Victory, her name was uh, Rosie Rez, and uh, she won the marathon there. But uh, marathon officials were a little skeptical about it. She had finished five minutes ahead of anyone else. And so they did a little background work on it. They investigated her race. You know what they found out? <laughs> she ran the first mile. She ran out of bounds, hailed a taxi cab. It's a good strategy. Had the driver take her to the last half mile of the race. She waited out till the time that she thought would be a good finishing time, got back into the race, and ran and finished the last half mile, uh, saying that she was the winner of the victor. Okay, well, there was a, you know, people snuffed that out right away. There was a, a reporter there right on site, live, live camera, had asked her, Madam, either you're the fastest woman on the face of the earth or you're a fraud. She was a fraud. Either Jesus, either Jesus is the Messiah, is Messiah, or Jesus is a fraud, masquerading as a Messiah. Now, let's just kind of, let's, watch, let's walk through some logic for a second. Because Jesus is an historical figure, no one denies that. Let's just walk through the idea, the logic that Jesus was a fraud. Just think, for, just think with me for a second. Okay, he healed these people, and he rose people from the dead. To be a fraud, you'd have to assume that he paid off all these people to pretend and to act maybe some kind of like faith healing service that is not legitimate. And everybody's been paid off and been told to keep silent for the rest of their life until their death. And all their ailments were just fake. Or let's just say too, if he was a fraud, that he led Thousands of people who he fed. Thousands of people. He fed thousands of people twice. Let's just, let's just say he got them all together and he said, listen, guys, I want all of you to leave here today saying that I fed you with two fish and five loaves. 
and it just miraculously spread. Now, I know that's not true. I know it's not true. But would, you know, just for the sake of my fame, would you just go out there and say all that stuff? And they all go, oh, yeah, sounds good. And not one of them broke down from that lie. Now, let's just assume that Jesus was a fraud, and he was crucified like the historical accurate picture paints. Let's just say he didn't die on the cross. Some people say he swooned, like he went into a a coma of sorts. And let's just say that spear which the Romans drove up in between uh, the rib cage and nearly pierced his heart didn't quite kill him. And they took him off the cross and they wrapped him up tightly like a mummy and placed him in a tomb and then put that tomb closed in an airtight container for two days without food or drink, nearly bleeding to death. And let's just say he gains his strength and breaks free from the mummified clothing, then is able to move the rock forward and then, and then overpower the Roman guards that stood witness there and then somehow convinces them, pays them off, does something to tell those Roman guards to, to lie to their commanding officer that an angel came and that Jesus rose from the dead. And let's just, let's just assume now that if Jesus were a fraud and all that took place and he goes back to his closest friends and they go, you really didn't die. He says, no, 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 no. I didn't die. I just kind of went into this coma thing. I was able to overpower the Roman guards. And now I'm here with you, but shh, don't tell anybody. Some of you guys know about the 11 disciples after Judas had hung himself. They went out to win the entire world over to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nearly all of them were in prison or executed or met some kind of grisly death, but let's just assume that they all decided that they were gonna die for a, for a fraud. They were just gonna die for some kind of made-up lie. Do you see how crazy that sounds? So a guy by the name of Dr. Stoner put all this together because at one time he thought Jesus was crazy. He's like, you know what, I, I need to look into this. So Dr. Stoner, who is a respected mathematician, professor emeritus at the Science of Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, he just said, you know what, I'm, I'm a, I, I know of the science of probability. He's a mathematician. I know the science of probability. So I'm just going to take eight, eight Old Testament prophecies, kind of like predictions about Jesus before Jesus was born. So he took eight Old Testament prophecies that were made 12,000 years before, or 1,200 years rather, before Jesus was born and said, what is the chances that one man would meet just those eight prophecies in their lifetime? What are the chances of that? Like circumstantially, that someone would meet the requirements of those eight biblical prophecies. And so here's what he did. He had his 600 students verify his work And he went through it. He took number one. What would be the chances of someone being born in Bethlehem? He studied out. said it would be one and 300,000. That's not bad odds. One and 300,000. 600 students said, yep, Dr. Stoner makes sense. That's our work. Okay, now next. What about a man being born in Bethlehem and then being betrayed by a friend like prophecy foretells? And they came up with their answer. Students verified their work. Yep. How about now born in Bethlehem and betrayed by a friend And just like prophecy said, for 30 pieces of silver. Came up with his probability, big number. Students verified it. Yep, he kept on going down the list with the rest of the prophecies until he finally made it to the eighth. And they all began to add up. And here's the number he came up with of the possibility, the probability that one man circumstantially could make that happen. It came down to one in 10 to the 17th power. You ever seen a number like that? I didn't know numbers had letters in them, all right? No clue. 
He's saying, that's what it's like. And so, because he knew there'd be like an ignoramus like me preaching about this one day, he's like, let me, Matt, let me illustrate it for you. Let me illustrate it for you. So he illustrated it to his class what that number would look like in an illustration form. He said that would be like taking the state of Texas and filling up the state of Texas, the landmass of Texas, two feet high with silver dollars. Just scattering silver dollars everywhere all over Texas so that the mound finally gets two feet high all the way across Texas and then getting into a helicopter and flying over Texas and you telling the pilot, yeah, land here because I think like one red coin, one red coin out of that whole pile, one red coin. I think there might be a red coin in this mix of silver dollars here. And then being blindfolded, taking out, and then you just randomly putting your hand through all those silver dollars and try to find and finding that one and saying, I got it. I got it. That would be the probability of one man circumstantially just hitting eight of those prophecies. And friends, Jesus didn't fulfill just eight prophecies. He fulfilled nearly 300 So what do you say? Jesus is liar, uh, lunatic, or is he Lord? Is he the king of kings, or is he just someone who fooled and faked his way into the history books? Because if you think Jesus is a liar, or if you think that Jesus is a lunatic, I would challenge you to go and search out the historical facts of Jesus And if you do, and you come to the conclusion that he still is a liar and a lunatic, friends, do you just keep living like you're living and keep doing what you're doing? But if you discover today that he's Lord, then you can't keep living like you're living, and you can't keep doing what you're doing. All that stuff stops to start to follow Jesus. You see, if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the Son of the living God, then it says, I'm going to trust Jesus with all that I have, my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Everything that I am, I'm going to give to Jesus. If Jesus truly is without sin but became sin for me so that I could have a relationship with God, if he really is Lord, if he really is Savior, then he has my all, my everything, all that I am is his. I've got to change my livelihood. But when I do change my livelihood, it changes the way I love my wife. It changes the way I parent my kids. It changes the way I bank, I save, and I invest and give. It changes the way I befriend others and forgive others. It changes my outlook on life. It changes my attitude. It changes, it changes my heart. When I give my life over to Jesus because he is Lord and he is Savior, it changes me. And in fact, it changes the world. And friends, Jesus was born in a manger and suffered the death of a Roman cross and rose from the dead three days later so that he could change you. So he could remove your sin so that you could be made right before God so that you could have a relationship with God unhindered by our stupidity. That's why Jesus came. And this is the day of salvation. For if you can't fill in the blank that Jesus is, but today you're saying, I think he's Lord, or I know he's Lord, then you need to come and meet with a pastor. We'll be standing just to the left of the stage in just a moment after we pray and during this time of song. 
Maybe you want to pray at these steps. Maybe there's something going on in your life. You're saying, I just, I just need to come forward and pray here, um, kind of at the altar of sorts. But whatever your need is, friend, I'm asking that you act upon it and take a step of faith today and give it over to Jesus. Will you stand with me? And let's pray together. Father, you are so good in the overwhelming evidence that is brought to us, even outside of your word, outside of the scriptures, there's just overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And we're thankful for your word because it gives us an intimate portrait of why you came and the hurt and heartaches that you took on and the happiness and the joy that you had in life and were able to leave here with others. I pray that people will find peace today, that they'll find a relationship in Jesus and through Jesus have a relationship with you, Father. I pray that people will be saved today, that they'll step away from their pride and make a step for you and give their life over to your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.